Welcome to Evangel Church, where we believe in seeing changed lives changing lives. Well, thank you, church. It's just really an honor to have this privilege to share with you this morning, especially in a series with the kind of gravity that it has in, in dealing with your questions. And today I'm going to be tackling questions that surround topics like the resurrection. What is death and what are the consequences of death? And then talking about the fate of those consequences, ultimately, and uh, some things about the gospel and salvation, ultimately. And so I'm just honored that I have that privilege to share with you about these things. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was reflecting with some friends regarding the process of growing up. Think with me a few minutes on this. Uh, when you're a toddler, right, you can't wait to go to school, right? Going to school is like the most important thing in the world, and you eagerly anticipate that first day because now you're on the path to becoming a big boy or a big girl. The only issue is that parents wish that they held that enthusiasm through all 12 grades. <laughs> And then as you get going in, in your childhood and you're growing up, then you start to wrestle with issues surrounding, uh, you know, money. You're like, wait a minute, I want my own money. So you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get my first job. And, and I remember getting my first job and my brother, and we were just so excited to get our first job. And, and then we all know the struggle of keeping that enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then you're in high school, and then you're like, wait a minute, I can drive. I can get into a car, and then I don't have to rely on my parents to be a taxi service. All the parents said amen. <laughs> and so there's this whole thing where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get my own car. And I got my own car. This, was, this is what my first car looked like. It was a 1971 white Ford Mustang. I loved it. I did all the inappropriate things that you're supposed to do as a teenager in that car. Burnouts and racing, and it was terrible. I shouldn't have done any of those things. But I couldn't wait to get into the car and drive. But then as school was ending its time, the car started to wear off a little bit in the excitement of it because now I'm like, wait a minute. I get to go to college. I get to learn about the things that I want to learn about. It's no longer learning about the things that they want me to learn about. I get to do all the things that I want to do. And so I was super excited to go off to college. And then as you're in college, then you're like, wait a minute. I, I want to do this journey with someone. I want to get married. And then so, you know, now, now I'm anticipating my wife. And then after meeting my wife, then I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want our own place. We want to buy our own house. And so you just start walking through all of these things. And, and as the list goes on and on and on and on, you know what the common thread through all of this has been as we were reflecting on these things? The future is always pulling us forward. We are always eagerly awaiting the next step. Whatever your future currently is, whether you're getting married, whether you're buying a house, having a child, starting a new job, getting ready for retirement or grandchildren, we all feel the pressure of the future encroaching upon us, shaping our very present. I want you to know that this feeling is supposed to be true in our walk with Jesus. The future is supposed to be shaping our present because the future hope of Christianity is constantly encroaching upon the present. Remember what Jesus prayed. He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, we are asking God to invade this present reality with his rule and reign and begin to shape our present into his glorious future the way that he intends it to be. So the result will be earth looking like heaven. Here's the problem. When I look out at the world, 
when I see what's going on. I see problems of all sorts. On Thursday, tragedy struck Spain as terrorists attacked Barcelona and Cambrils. I see international tension so high that we could enter into World War III at any moment. North Korea, anybody? It's really not funny. And let's not forget about the racial tensions we're experiencing in our country. Simply put, the world is reaching its boiling point. And the doomsday clock people have set it at two and a half minutes to midnight. Today, I believe that there's a message of hope that the world is in desperate need of. I want to talk to you about the only hope that I know and believe that will bring us through our present turbulence. That is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible with you today, or if you have your app and your smartphone, I want you to open up your Bible app to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to begin in verse 1. I'll give you a second to get there. We begin in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you, which you also receive and which you also stand, by which you are saved and you hold, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You see, Paul was writing this letter some 20 years after the death of Jesus. Paul had not given them some made-up story. Rather, he brought them a tradition handed down from the very eyewitnesses, themselves. This is the gospel that was bringing about change and transformations in people's lives all across the Mediterranean. And you know what, church? This is the same gospel that is changing lives all around the world today and has changed many of your lives. The content of Paul's gospel and what you got saved with was simply this, that one, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, all in accordance with the scriptures. This is not just some haphazard event that happened out of the blue. Rather, this was all a part of God's story and plan, and he was leading it to this climactic moment in the person of Christ. And that's what I want to focus with you today on, on what Christ did. But not only did he rise from the dead, then he appeared to numerous people over the next four days. This was not just some random event or series of hallucinations in a, tr in a small tract of land the size of New Jersey with a group of people with strange monotheistic beliefs in a, in a very polytheistic world. No, this is news that is worth sharing. This is news that could change your life. This is truly good news. And church, we're in need of some good news in this world. This is news about a God who loves us so much, he decided to tear down every obstacle in our way to bring us back into relationship with him. So what's the problem for Paul? Go with me to verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, friends, Paul saw that the Corinthian church was in danger of missing something very important. Paul knew that the church's view of the future encroached upon their present. And if they missed this vital fact, something would go wrong in their spiritual formation. So with a pastor's heart, Paul begins to craft a dense theological treatise 
that the victory of Jesus secures a hope for us beyond whatever we could dare to ask or hope for. And that hope is meant to invade our present and begin to shape our reality. And for Paul, this problem goes all the way back to the beginning. Paul tells us, in verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. You see, all the way back in the garden, in the very beginning, in Genesis, God created humanity in his image and likeness. And he created them for relationship. And so like angled mirrors, they were to behold the face of their maker and then reflect that back out to, the, to all of creation in loving rule. However, there was one condition to this relationship. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it you shall what? Surely die. If Adam and Eve would respect this boundary God created, all would be well for them. But like with all great stories, there's a plot conflict. And the antagonist arrives on the scene in chapter 3, and the serpent comes and deceives Eve and Adam, who was with her. They took the fruit of the tree, seeing that it was a delight to the eyes and could make one wise, and ate. And in that moment, their eyes were opened. The grace that once covered them fell, and they realized they were naked and became ashamed. And then they took their nakedness, they, they covered it, and they hid from God at his com coming. You know, sin, it has a real tendency to do that. I, I don't know about you, but I, I know this is true for me at least, that when I find myself going astray, I don't want to come out and say, hey, here's, 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 here's my problem, here's my sin, here's my issue. You know, the other, I, I told my wife I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to do it anyways. I love you. <laughs> we, got, we, got into, we got into a little fight on, on, on Friday. And, and you know what I wanted to do? I just wanted to leave. I'm like, I don't need to deal with any of this. Why? Because I don't need this problem. I just need to hide and get away and be by myself. But notice what God says to them. Where are you? Because God doesn't want us to draw back. See, God knew something in their relationship changed, and God was broken over that. God was grieved over that. And God wanted that relationship back. But something was fractured. Something was different. And God knew that, there was, that something would be needed to be done in order to repair that which was broken. And so now all their relationships with God, with each other, and with creation were fractured. Yet what is curious to me is what didn't happen. They didn't die. Now, some may say, well, they spiritually died. And while that may be true, the very next story has some interesting details to shed on this. You see, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, we find their children worshiping God from their work. It's a good thing to know that we can worship God with our work, and we can learn a lesson or two from Cain and Abel, um, because so many of us see our work as just, well, this is the stuff that we got to do until we can get to the more important things. But you can worship God with, with your work. And Abel brings a firstborn animal and Cain some of his harvest. And God accepts the animal but not the harvest or the vegetables. And some theologians have supposed from this that God must be not a vegan. <laughs> Cain is distraught at this. And God said to him, why are you angry and why do you look so dejected? 
If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see, the picture here of sin is like a lion waiting in the grass. And it's looking for this moment of weakness, this moment when you are just about to go off to stray. And in that moment, it's just wet, ready to prowl. And then it's waiting to capitalize and see and pounce. Because in that moment, sin will conquer you. It will overcome you. But what do you have to do? Just go back to the last slide real quick. Uh, go back, yeah. But you must master it. You must overcome the power of sin. And guess what? God knew that we couldn't overcome the power of sin in our own strength, so he provided a way, but more on that later. So Cain, like his parents, lost his battle to his desire. He gave into the power of sin and went into the field and killed his brother. The same pattern of disobedience and now physical death are seen. The same pattern would follow all of humanity and like a plague cover us all. The tragedy of the fall has become not simply that it happened to Adam and Eve, but that it happens in all of us. That is, every single one of us now are destined to repeat choosing ourselves, choosing our own way, giving into the power of sin, and thus being given over to the power of death. The way that Paul puts it this in Romans 5 is so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin and death execute the rule over humanity and God's people. They're strange bedfellows. They like two kings that don't mind sharing power with each other at all. However, God had not given up because from the very beginning he desired one thing and that is to live among his people and be in relationship with them. This led however, to him choosing Israel. As he told Abraham, through you all people of the earth would be blessed. And Israel was essentially called to be the people through whom the curse of Eden would be reversed. That is from the bondage of sin and death. Why? You're going to bless all people. That means you're going to remove that covering of the bondage of sin and death over all people. But here's the problem. They too were a part of the problem. And over and over again, the people decided to reject God and go after other gods. Golden calf, anybody? How about Baal? We just make gods. We have this tendency just to continue to make gods for ourselves and to reject the true God who rescues us. Therefore, God, despite having rescued them time and time again, he decided that he was going to revoke the blessings of the covenant, namely taking them out of the land and destroying the temple, temple symbolically saying that he'd removed his presence from them. God was like a parent. He looked at Israel's sin and said, not in my house, not in my place. This is the land that I've given you. And all the parents said, amen. Yet prior to them being taken away like any good parent, he warned them through the prophets that if they would just turn and repent, he would turn his wrath away and they would not have to suffer this disgrace. But alas, like a teenager, stubborn, Israel went away into exile, but not without a promise, a promise that one day God would redeem her and rescue her. 
And, and if she turned from her sins and called on her God, he would redeem her. And so God told them, I'm coming back for you. This isn't the end of your story. In fact, God shapes the promised story of salvation around the narrative of death and resurrection. You see, to a young prophet named Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes him to a vision of a valley of dry bones. And while he's there, he sees all these bones and God asks him a question, can these bones live? And he says, you, you, God, you, only you know whether this can happen. And he says, I want you to prophesy to these bones that they would live. So he begins to prophesy to the bones. And in that moment, what happens? The bones start assembling together. Flesh and sinew and tendons and all these things begin to come on them. And then, and then God says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit inside of them. And then they're going to rise up and be this great army. And regarding this, this is what God says when, when he talks to Ezekiel about the fulfillment of this. He says, in, uh, just continuing right here, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your lands. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. The signs that God gave so that his people would know he was fulfilling his promises were the spirit and resurrection. The spirit and resurrection. Consequently, the Jews began to speak of time in two very different ways than we would. They began to speak about time in two distinct ages. There was on the one hand the age, and the age was a time of separation, sin, and death, and sickness, where the law was not obeyed and God was not known. It was essentially a time when the people would go astray, but they believed that there would come a time when God would fulfill his prophetic promises to them, when God would come and liberate them from their repressors at their repentance, and therefore he would have to defeat the powers that were holding them in bondage, and thereby he would establish himself as king and Lord. This, my friends, is the promised age to come. In the age to come, it would be a time of relationship where God would restore that which was broken between his people. It was a time of forgiveness when God would remove that which separated him. It'd be a time of eternal life where the powers of death would lose their hold over humanity. Sickness would no longer hold us in bondage, but we would be walking in vibrant healing. The law would be written on our hearts. The very thing that separated God's people from himself that they were not able to, to, to um, to obey, God said, I'm going to remove it and write it on your heart. And God himself would dwell in their midst for all of eternity. This is the final picture that God is working towards. This is the promised age to come. So when a young Jewish prophet comes on the scene and he starts saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that is the rule and reign of God is being established in what I'm doing, these echoes from the past begin to reverberate in the present. You see, Jesus went around and performed signs in the power of the Holy Spirit that pointed toward this long-promised victory. Yet this wasn't what they expected because the kingdom was to be brought in by a Messiah. And the Messiah's job is to vindicate the righteous, not minister to sinners. What, what, what is this? But you see, God was doing something different. He was doing something unexpected. 
And in the person of Jesus, God focused his prophetic promises from the past, and they came cascading down into the present, and they were rushing everyone forward into God's glorious future. Through following Jesus and living under his teaching, the blessings of the future could be experienced in the present. They were seeing the world the way that God imagined it. However, this was not the end. This was only the beginning, church. There's more. As the evil powers schemed to drive Jesus to the cross, what they thought was the end of this movement was only the beginning. In his death, the sin that had driven us away from God was removed, and the power of death that was unleashed in the Garden of Eden was broken in his resurrection. Jesus became like a prism of the prophetic promises of God. And just as light enters into a prism and refracts out into all the colors of the rainbow, revealing what was there all along, what happens in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, we begin to see the promises of God truly coming into fruition in exciting and surprising ways. And it continues on because the future of God began to clash with the present. And 50 days after his resurrection, the second promised sign in Ezekiel, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. Jesus rose from the dead 50 days later he sends the spirit this is the sign that God is bringing the prophetic promises into fruition and guess what you and I have the Holy Spirit we just prayed for a fresh outpouring friends we're praying for God's prophetic promises to be realized in our present the marker of God's people now was their trust in the resurrected Messiah and and through that, they would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, believers, according to Hebrews, have tasted of the powers of the age to come. It's Hebrews 6. We became the people through whom signs are to be performed that point forward to God's glorious future. You know, every time you pray for someone to get healed, that's a sign of God's future. Every time you go out and you minister to the poor and you do the things that Jesus did, that's a sign pointing to God's future. Every time we gather and worship, it's a sign pointing to the day when we will all worship God in heaven together and in the new Jerusalem, we'll sit down at a meal with Jesus himself and all the saints. The future of God gets to be lived out in the present community of the church. But wait, friends, there's more. It gets even better. The Spirit is only a deposit of a more glorious future. Why? Because our future is Jesus-shaped. This is because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul continues in chapter 15. You thought I was on a rabbit trail, didn't you? <laughs> Here's what he says in chapter 15, verse 20. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so shall we. But each in their own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then the end comes when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Amen. The day you eat of the fruit, the tree, shall surely die. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Death must be defeated. But this will only happen in the end. At his coming when we're all resurrected, and the prophetic promises that began to be fulfilled in Jesus reach their fulfillment in us, the church. Yeah. 
until we understand that death is an enemy, we have missed a huge part of the victory of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Now, it's usually about this time that I'm explaining these things that people ask, well, Bobby, what about heaven? I'm glad you asked. Where in the world does heaven fit in all of this? Great question, even better framed. Heaven is supposed to come to earth, friends. Remember the prayer that we prayed in the beginning. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about the final picture of all things. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God like a bride prepared for her groom meant to come together in an intimate bond of new creation. You're on the right track. Heaven is the place where God dwells. And for those that have placed their trust in Christ, the tragedy of their death is transcended by the love of God in order to bring us into his presence. If our future is Jesus-shaped, then we have to ask, where is Jesus now? He's in heaven with God. He's not in the grave, but firmly seated in heaven at the right hand of God. So where is the church going to be when, when we die? When we go off onto the grave? In heaven with God. The promise of eternal life helps us to understand this even more fully. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Our trust in Christ brings us the inheritance of eternal life. But what just is this eternal life? John 17.3, and I'm sorry I forgot to change the verse on the slide. This is what he says, and this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ you have sent. <clears throat> the knowledge of God is what eternal life is all about. In fact, some scholars have argued that what's going on here in the word know is the Hebrew word for intimacy. Just as Adam knew Eve, his wife, and then she bore a son, so too we are invited to know God in an intimate and personal and transformative way. And through that relationship we begin to inherit the very promises of God. It's not just about a knowledge of the mind, but a knowledge of the self in a way that only can be experienced as a husband and wife know each other. Eternal life then is not a reality that it will be just experienced then. It can be experienced now. You can know God now through his son, Jesus Christ. You can come into a personal relationship with him. And through that, the Holy Spirit will come and change and transform your life. The future promises of eternal life are meant to invade our present. It is meant to shape our reality, transcend our death, and ultimately bring us to the full life of the resurrection. If the sting of death is sin, and through the victory of the cross, Jesus has defeated and canceled out our sin, we can now say with Paul and the prophet Isaiah, O death, where is your sting? We can proudly confess that there is life after death. When John is invited to see heavenly things in the book of Revelation, he tells us this, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had maintained. Those who are in Christ, when they die, they go straight before the presence of God. And that's a glorious thing. We are firmly placed in heaven when we die in Christ. But death is still an enemy. We've already read that. When you die, no matter the cause of death, death still won. 
Christ still has to defeat the power of death once and for all. And when Christ returns, we shall be made alive again. As Paul says, the perishable shall put on imperishable, and this mortal life must put on immortality. Then death will be swallowed up in victory, and there will be life after life after death. That is the resurrected life. That is the life in the age to come. That is the life of the new Jerusalem. This is the reality we've been hoping for, and this is the reality we've been waiting for. If this is our hope in Christ to be freed from the bondage of sin and to be liberated ultimately from the powers of death, what happens to those who are not in Christ, to those who reject Christ? Their reality is not that far from the reality of the Israelites. When they rejected God, he sent them away into exile. He removed them from his presence because they did not honor God, though countless times he gave them to repent and choose a life that didn't honor him. The author of 2 Kings write this, and they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You see, you reflect what you worship to your rescue or to your ruin, to your salvation or to your destruction. And the, and the trajectory that you set your life on now will determine your destiny. And if you want to choose things that glorify yourself, to trust in yourself, to say, I got free will, I can make this choice, it's all about me, well, then God will give you exactly what you wanted. Isn't that so glorious? I mean, think about this. God loves us so much that he will give us the very thing that we desired, a life apart from him. He's giving you what you wanted, friends. That's the trajectory that you said you wanted. So why in the world or why in heaven would he give you that? If you don't want him now, those that choose to trust in themselves reject God. God will give them over to what they wanted all along. They will suffer an eternity of separation from God, being judged in unquenchable fire. This is the reality we know as hell. And so we can be shaped, friends, by two realities. By Jesus and the resurrection through the power of the Spirit, or by sin and death. The choice is ultimately ours. That is our future. And if our future is meant to be shaping our present, how are you being shaped? Um, Pastor Rick and the worship team want to come up. That'd be great. Thanks. Jesus said it this way. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And the question is, what road are you on today? What is the journey that you're deciding to set your life on? What is the trajectory and the shape of your life? And that's the invitation today. And there are a number of places that we can be along in this journey. We can say, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm on the road that leads to destruction, and I know that, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that way. And I, I would encourage you to turn, repent. Put your trust in Jesus because there's a more glorious future promised for you. I'm not saying Christianity is easy, but I'm saying, I'm saying there is another way to live life, and that's one that's Jesus-shaped, one that's selfless, 
and one that's touched by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that's invaded by God's future. And you may say, well, I've been on that journey, but I don't really quite know where I stand right now. I think I'm at a fork in the road and I'm about to turn one way or the other. And I would encourage you to turn to the, to the narrow way. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's not always easy making that choice every single day to say, Jesus, I'm going to repent. That is, I'm going to turn, orient my life towards you. I'm going to trust in you for this new life, and I'm going to follow you each and every day. This isn't just a one-time decision. This is an everyday decision that we have to make. And some of you are saying, yeah, I've been on that road. That's awesome. And I'm saying, go for it even more. There's always more to press into. There's always more to have. There's always more of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. So keep reaching. Keep pressing. I'll, I'll tell you this story real quick. I was, in a, I was on a mission trip in Jamaica, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Chris up. I was on this mission trip in, in, in Jamaica, and uh, I was reading this story, and it was with Smith Wigglesworth. <clears throat> He's a famous uh, healing evangelist and preacher at the turn of the 19th century, or uh, 20th century. And uh, he was talking about the fullness of the things of God. And he said, I sit at the edge of the shore and this is where I'm standing at the fullness of the things of God. And he's saying, and this guy has seen miracles and healings and all these dramatic, awesome things, raising of the dead and all this stuff. And he's saying, of the things of God, I'm just at the edge of the seashore. And then in that moment, that evening, I prayed, oh God, then where am I? And if you've ever been to Wildwood Boardwalk, I had this picture that I was on the, I was actually on the boardwalk and I was looking out at him on the edge of the seashore. And I said, oh God, what would happen if someone jumped in? He said it'd be heaven on earth. I'm saying jump in, friends. If you're, if you're on the way, then jump in the water and go for everything that God has for you. But if you're not on the journey, then I'm saying get on the boardwalk. Get on the way. Get on the path. Thank you so much for, for listening. And Yeah. Amen. so much to, to just wrestle with and allow to fill into our hearts and it's not the last time you're going to hear from Bobby so, uh, so you can say yes and amen to that we're thankful Bobby for your teaching and for your preaching and delivering God's word and power to us it's a powerful picture I wish you would have shared that in the first service standing on the boardwalk you know let's just all just for a second just close your eyes with me and let's just kind of frame that out in our own lives. God gives that picture of his spirit being like water. Being, being like living water, as Jesus said. So think about the shoreline just being the edge of God's presence and his promise and the fullness of what he can do. And those that have been those great people that have gone before, that you've seen God work powerfully through their lives, or those that have just stood with kind of their toes in the water. They're just at the beginning of all that God can do. But I said, as he thought of himself, he saw himself standing all the way back, not even on the shore, standing on the boardwalk. Where are you today? Are you on that path? Are you pressing in? Are you longing and moving towards more of God in your life every single day? Are you desiring to walk in a way that pleases him? Or have you become distracted? Have you become distracted by all the things that are happening around you? Have you allowed for this world, this culture, this life, the desires of this world to shape the way that you're longing, the way that you're reaching, the way that you're moving? Have you forgot about the future promises of God? 
that await you. Today, just as Bobby said, we see in God's word, sin is crouching at the door, waiting to master, waiting to take advantage, waiting to take you out and put you off course from all that God has for your life. And if it was only up to you and me in our own strength, we could never master it. But thanks be to God that the fullness of time Jesus came and he dealt a death blow to sin, to hell, to the grave through his death and resurrection. And today he's made you more than a conqueror. That today you could stand firm in Christ and experience his protection, his power, his presence in your life to lead you, to protect you, to guide you on the path. What's been put in, in front of you is impossible in our strength, but God's power and the presence of the Holy Spirit can meet you even now. But turn. If you're walking in the wrong way, if you're hiding in sin, if you're hiding in ways that you know don't please God, turn your heart and your life towards him today. Today, if you don't yet know Jesus, make a decision to put your whole hope, your whole faith, your whole trust in him. Because there is an eternal separation from God that we know as hell that awaits those that have not put their faith in Jesus. So would you stand with me today all around this room? Let's all stand up together. And as we go to a point of response, we're going to respond to the word that we've heard. And I sense just among the majority of us, there are things that we must repent of. There are things that are wrong within us that the Holy Spirit, even in this moment, even as the word's being preached, they're convicting you even now. It's something that maybe you thought was small, but you can't get it out of your mind because the Holy Spirit's showing you something needs to turn in your heart so that your life moves towards God and what he has for you. Just say, Lord, I repent of that. I turn from that. Help me by the power of your Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me. Just begin to do that. Begin to identify and ask God to identify those areas in you to lead you back, to help you to press in more to all that he has for you. But there might be someone in the room, someone watching online today, someone that's hearing this in some way that today you're far from God and you've never made a decision to place your hope and trust in Jesus. You've never responded to the good news that Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose again. And today, there is life after death that's promised. There's eternal life, hope, healing, and forgiveness that can await those that put their faith in Jesus. So with every head bowed and eye closed, if today you've heard that and you're ready to finally respond to what Jesus has done for you, you don't have to be a perfect person, but you have to be willing to call upon the name of the Lord to confess your sin and to turn and follow him. And today, if you'd say, Pastor, I've never done that before, but today is the day I'm ready to. I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Right where you are right now in this moment, lift your hand above your head to identify that that's you, and I want to pray for you. If that's you, lift your hand above your head right now. Amen. Is there anyone else? Praise the Lord. Is there anyone else? If that's you. So I want to put my hope in Jesus today. Can't see every hand up, but we're going to pray right now. And I want you to repeat these after me. Repeat these words from the bottom of your heart. And anyone here, if you're recommitting your heart to the Lord, even in this moment, say this from the bottom of your heart Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins that have separated me from you. I turn to you today and I will follow you all the days of my life. I believe that you died for my sins 
you rose again so that I could have eternal life. Thank you for this. And I commit myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we celebrate, church, together the hope of eternity, the hope of new life? If today you said that for the first time, there is a rejoicing in heaven as greater than we could ever rejoice here on earth. But for some of us today, I believe today's word for you, it was that word you needed at a fork in the road. Maybe you've been slipping. Maybe you've been wandering. May God use this word today to lead you back to him, to lead you into a fuller, vibrant, and more faith-filled journey that you experience all of his promise, all of his power, everything that he has for us. Amen? Amen. God bless you uh, as you go today. We're going to have a time of prayer at these altars. Our prayer team, if you could please come. If you need prayer, you can feel free to come forward. If not, um, make yourself available to everything going out on out in the foyer. And we'll see you next Sunday. God bless. We hope you have been challenged and blessed by this message. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com.